maybe before we actually read chapter 3, we can have a, have a little overview of the book. Uh, we have uh, had two messages on the first two chapters of the book of Habakkuk. And on the, on the screen there, I, I prepared a, a little bit of just, a, just to remind you of, of what we've already looked at. So you could say that, that the book can be divided into two parts. There's the dialogue between God and the prophet Habakkuk in the first two chapters. And then the last chapter is Habakkuk's third prayer. And so just looking at, at the different components of the dialogue, we have, uh, we have Habakkuk's first prayer. And he says things like this, Why is there injustice and violence all around me? Why are you not doing anything? He says to God. And then God responds, I am working. The Babylonians will invade. And then Habakkuk responds to that and says, God, this seems unfair. They are more evil than us. This doesn't seem like you. This seems out of character. And then God responds in all of chapter 2. And he says, he says this. He says, have faith. Justice will prevail. Babylon will also be punished. And he says, I want the earth to be filled with the knowledge of my glory. I am in my holy temple. Be silent before me. And then today we're looking at Habakkuk's third prayer, which is a very unique chapter in many ways. It's, a, it's much like a psalm, a psalm of praise of God's works, confidence and joy in the Lord. And so when we, when we start to look at it, at the chapter, you'll notice that it, it be, begins with these musical no notations. You've probably seen them in the Psalms. Um, in this case, it says uh, uh, on uh, Shigianoth, and, uh, and then at the end it says for the director of music. So that same kind of thing that the Psalms have. And there's also uh, a, the, uh, the word Selah, S-E-L-A-H. We see that in the Psalms as well. And we don't know exactly what these terms mean, but Selah is probably a a place to pause and, and ponder what was, what was just read. So it's probably an instrumental interlude because this is likely a, um, a psalm that was sung. Um, okay, and then, and then you'll, you'll, you'll remember that at the end of chapter 2, um, God calls, uh, calls the people to be silent before him. And so... We can imagine there was a, a prolonged silence and stillness after God's words. He said, God is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth keep silent before me or before him. And so I wondered, you know, how, how much of a break would have there, how much time would have passed before chapter 2 and chapter 3? Well, today we'll just pause for two seconds and then we'll, then we'll begin. So chapter 3, if you haven't found it already, it's on uh, page 1,459. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. 
His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked, he looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon sit still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on a nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on to the heights. For the director of music on my stringed instruments. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we will work our way through the chapter. I'm not sure how familiar you are with this book, but maybe you read it and think, wow, what's, there's a lot happening in, in here. And indeed there is. And, but I suspect that, that many of you know the last few verses of the chapter, and that's um, where we're headed. And. Uh, um, at some point, there will be, uh, at any time, there can be a, on, on the screen a, an outline of the, ch- of the chapter, just to get, get your bearings. So Habakkuk was facing great challenges. He was in turmoil and anguish. He had to wait and then watch the evil Babylonians invade Judah. He struggled with God on what he was doing and what he was not doing. But Habakkuk didn't give up on God. He had questions about God's work, so he went straight to God with his questions and struggles. All of us face struggles of various kinds. Most of the time, we don't understand why. We don't understand because God's ways and actions are not our ways. They're not like ours. And the Bible is not, or the Bible is very open about 
are about suffering. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7 says that you have had to suffer grief of, of all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Later in chapter 4, Peter says regarding suffering from being a Christian, Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. So brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, we should expect suffering and trials of various kinds. I know that stories can be told about families here at Bethel who have suffered immensely. But I want to reflect on, on two families, not from Bethel, that I witnessed about 17 years ago. My two Calvin roommates, Brian and Matt, planned a weekend trip to Chicago in Grand Rapids with two other friends at the end of January. They never made it. In whiteout conditions, a tanker truck collided with them, and Brian was killed instantly, while Matt suffered profound brain damage. Such unspeakable pain that some of us have had to face, and I fear will one day face. God answered Habakkuk's questions in, in chapters 1 and 2, and God's answers blew him away. In verse 2 of chapter 3, Habakkuk says, Lord, I have heard the report about you. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Habakkuk had heard of God's deeds of long ago. For example, during the times of the Exodus. But Habakkuk was also talking about the awe he had of, of God's works, of, of what he was going to do through those evil Babylonians. Verse 2 is the only chapter, or the only verse in chapter 3 that, that directly requests God to do something. Habakkuk requests God to work like he did in the ages past. Repeat your mighty works in our day. In our time, make them known. Israel based its religion on the work of God rather than on any mystical experiences. Israel would always look back. God's works of faithfulness of the past became the foundation of their faith. Psalm 77 is a good example of this. The psalmist begins by saying in verse 2, In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Like Habakkuk, the psalmist in Psalm 77 was in anguish and was facing a very difficult situation. But then he says in verse 5, I considered the days of old, the years long ago. And then, and then in verse 10, and I will, I will uh, read, to, read to the end there. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. 
Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. And, and you'll notice as we read on that Psalm 77 has some of the similar imagery as Habakkuk 3. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. We can see how the psalmist got out of his pit of despair. He, he first said, I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. But it was when he looked back into the scriptures, to God's faithfulness, to God's mighty power and goodness, that he was strengthened. And his faith was restored. In our day, many crave and seek religious experiences. They, they want to they feel God and have spiritual moments. But if the foundation of our faith is having religious experiences, our faith may falter. Intense spiritual experiences for most Christians are few and far between. Our faith is not based on these experiences, regardless of how memorable they were for us. So the prophet Habakkuk based his confidence and faith in the work of God in the past. He looked back into God's word. Since God worked in the past, he could trust God to work in the present and in the future. Verse 2 also serves as an introduction to verses 3 to 15. God answered the prayer of verse 2 with some people call it a theophany. And that was, that was a new word for me. Um, a theophany describes an appearance of God in great power and glory. Often looking to the events of, of the Exodus and uh, giving of the law in Mount Sinai. The theophany in verses 3 to 15 make up the most extensive and elaborate theophany to be found in the Old Testament. So now we'll look at some of the highlights in the appearance of God showing his powerful works. Verse 3. God comes from, from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Haran. And there's a, there's a Selah in, in the text which should cause us to pause for a while and ponder what we just read. So those names don't mean anything to us, but the, the image of God was huge for Habakkuk and the people of Judah. Together, these two areas uh, south of Judah refer to God's coming in the past when he gave the law and led the people of God through the wilderness. Habakkuk envisions God marching from the south in power. We can also note that God is referred to as the Holy One. This should remind his people of God's holiness, of how he appeared on the mountain in a cloud and smoke with great peals of thunder, and how he calls his people to be holy. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Thus, like Psalm 77, this verse reminded the hearers and readers of the, of the work of God in the past 
and his majestic power during the time of the Exodus and his faithfulness in gathering and protecting his people of Israel. So a right conclusion after thinking about God's great works in the past and of his holiness and about God marching from the south in power is to say, his glory covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. Verse 4 describes God's appearance as bright and glorious, perhaps like the sunrise or like lightning. And God shows himself as the ultimate divine warrior. In verse 4, he, he casts his, his lightning bolts from his hands. Verse 5 pictures God's divine judgment. Before him goes pestilence, and plague follows at his heels. In verse 9, God uncovers his bow and gets his divine arrows of judgment ready. In verse 11, harks back to the time of Joshua when the sun stood still in the sky at, at the victory of the Amorites at Gibeah. God's arrows are flying speedily through the air, and his spear reflects the light as he uses it. In verse 12, we see God marching. He is marching through the earth in wrath, and he threshes the nations in anger. The word that, that means threshing is an interesting word. It, it, it reminded the people of a common everyday occurrence. Oxen moved around a circular pit filled with wheat or barley to separate the ears of grain from the stalks by trampling on the grain. So Habakkuk saw God as the ultimate farmer of judgment, threshing the evil nations like Babylon, throwing them away as useless chaff in order to save Judah, his chosen people. Besides seeing God as the ultimate divine warrior of judgment, we also see God's creation reacting in dramatic ways to the appearance of God. In verse 6, God stops marching. He picks up the earth and starts to shake it in violent earthquakes. The mountains crumble and shudder at the sight of God and because of his actions. The people of Cush and Midian tremble in fear in verse 7. Let's, let's look back at, to verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? This is an important verse because Habakkuk interrupts the theophany of God's appearances of God with, with a series of questions that connects with important historical events of the past. So this verse is referring to how God uses power over the Nile by turning it into blood. And he stopped the waters of Jordan so that the people could walk safely through. And he separated the Red Sea so also that people could cross it safely to escape from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God performing these acts showed his greatness and his power. Habakkuk is asking God's purpose for coming. Is he coming for the same reasons as before? So Habakkuk is once again looking back in his word. In the past, God came to save people at that time, at the time of the Exodus, to take his people into the, the promised land. 
The questions in verse 8 are not really answered until verse 13. So let's look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from foot to neck. God was saving his people. His people are his anointed. The, wo- the word for anointed, Mashiach, that's where we get the word Messiah. God was going to crush the ruler of the Babylonians and bring him to shame. God was going to save his anointed people and their anointed family of David. Thus God was preserving his people and promising that the Messiah was coming. God, As God promised to David, he promised to Habakkuk. God would preserve a remnant for Judah. Even when things look bleak, God keeps his promises. It reminds me of, of Isaiah 11, which describes David's family as, as, a, as a stump, which from the outside looked dead. But Isaiah 11 says that a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots will bear fruit. God was saving his people so that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, would come into the world and save the world from all the sin and destruction and injustice and death. Verse 14 and 15 further explain how God was working in the past, defeating the enemies of Israel and trampling the sea. Again, this is a reference to God's protection and providence for Israel at the Red Sea. Like God trampled the Red Sea with his horses to save the Israelites at that time, God will save his people again. Without a doubt, Habakkuk had all his questions answered. He was humbled that God would use the Babylonians to judge the wickedness of Judah. God told him that he would judge and punish Babylon. And now by examining the scriptures, Habakkuk had been reminded of God's work in the past, of his faithfulness, of his power, of his judgment, of his wickedness, sorry, of his judgment of wickedness, and of his majesty and holiness. Israel's victorious redeemer in the past could be counted on to save yet again. God refuses to be uninvolved with his people. He will not idly watch human injustice run out of control. God enters into the sinful messiness of human existence to save those who are hurting. I think perhaps Habakkuk received more than he bargained for. He was first overwhelmed with what he heard in chapter 2, for he got a glimpse of the Lord in his holy temple, and he, along with the whole earth, is commanded to be silent before him. And now in chapter 3, Habakkuk sees more of God's glory and power and greatness and wrath. So he responds in verse 16 in the best possible way, I would say. Verse 16 starts the same way as verse 2. I heard. I think Habakkuk had heard almost too much. His, his body reacts. I heard and my heart pounded. His, his, heart, his, his insides were trembling and quaking. My lips quivered at the sound of what he heard. De- decay crept into my bones and my legs 
trembled. At the end of chapter 3, we get a picture of Habakkuk's emotional state. On the outside, it appears that Habakkuk was shaking in his boots. He heard and saw the goodness and greatness of God. He knew about God's wrath and judgment and power. And Habakkuk now knew what was going to happen to Judah and their enemies. And Habakkuk reacts similar, I think, as Isaiah did. When Isaiah saw, saw the Lord high and, and lifted up, sitting on a throne. You'll, you'll remember from chapter 6, when, when Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he says, Woe is me! I am ruined! The second part of verse 16 is, is critical. And, and it connects with chapter 2, verse 3, where God instructed Habakkuk to wait for the revelation God says, it awaits its appointed time. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. So that is exactly what Habakkuk does. He says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of trouble to come, to come upon the nation who invaded us, who will invade us. So Habakkuk was being obedient to chapter 2, verse 4. He was living by faith. He knew of God's works in the past, his, his works of goodness and faithfulness. Habakkuk knew that God would use Babylon to judge Judah, which would start to happen in his time. But he also believed that judgment would come upon Babylon after Habakkuk's time. God had promised it. Habakkuk believed that it would come to pass. The prophet was beginning to understand the real significance of this theophany of God's appearance. God stood as ready as ever to aid Judah in Habakkuk's day, just like he did in days past. When this realization came over the prophet, he could rest with assurance, knowing that the situation was in the capable hands of his father, of his almighty God, who would bring about his perfect will when the time was right. Habakkuk had prayed, and there was nothing else he needed to do. Now he was resting. What a transformation Habakkuk had gone through. He, remember this, the book began with questions like, how long, how could you, God? And now he's able to say, I will patiently wait and rest for the day of trouble. But Habakkuk was not home yet. To use a, a baseball analogy, he was on, I would say, third base. He knew God was in control of the situation, but he wanted to get home. And now we've come to the climax of the psalm where the tensions of the whole book get resolved. I've always been fascinated with verse 17. I find it very interesting. I think the verse speaks for itself especially in this, in this farming community of Lacombe. Habakkuk presents the worst possible situation he can think of for the agric agricultural world. The situation is so bad that it is unclear how he could even have food to eat and survive. But even with suffering and loss, Habakkuk had learned that he could trust God. And with that trust comes great joy. 
not in his circumstances, but in God. So he says, yet I, yet I in the Lord, I will rejoice. The Hebrew puts in the Lord first. Yet I in the Lord will rejoice. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Rejoicing in the Lord is what brings Habakkuk all the way home. He is not merely waiting or resting in the Lord's will, but he is resolved to actively rejoice in God, his Savior. His desire to rejoice in the Lord emphasizes his changed heart and his triumphant faith. As Christians, we need to be a rejoicing people. We, we, we know that from, from the New Testament where Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. And 1 Thessalonians 5 or 16 says the same thing, rejoice always. This is different than just being happy. Our happiness changes with our circumstances. Having joy in the Lord involves trust in his perfect will. And having contentment in the Lord, even when circumstances and situations around you become sour and unhappy. You'll, you'll remember my, my roommates, Brian and Matt. Brian died and, and Matt suffered from severe brain damage. I didn't have much interaction with, with their families, but I remember at the funeral their, their statements of faith. And I think they, they rejoiced in the Lord despite their immeasurable pain. Matt's father bargained with God that something good would result from this terrible accident. He prayed that many would come to know Jesus through this tragedy. So at Brian's funeral, he told about how when the young boys that he was working with saw his faith during this difficult time, they wanted that faith. And so Matt's dad reported that at least uh, 15 young men turned their hearts to accept Jesus. And, and the parents of Brian said something like this, God didn't have to give Brian at all to us, but he did. And, and so we are so thankful for the 22 years that he did give us with him. In the pain of these parents, God enabled them to see glimpses of God's goodness and grace. Despite their huge loss, they were able to rejoice in the Lord, their Savior. What about you? What pain are you facing now? What struggles are difficult in your life? Just to name a couple of things connected with our text. Imagine losing all of if you have crops, losing all of your crops to a terrible hailstorm, or something deadly wiping out all of your cows, would you be able to rejoice in the Lord? I know that some in this church have, have lost a child, and I hate even to mention it, but it, you know, and it was hard for me even last Saturday and Sunday to go through what our family went through. The message of, of Habakkuk challenges us to, to look to God in faith and to rejoice in him even in the worst of situations. In our worst of situations, I believe we can still rejoice 
even as we, we raise our questions to God of why, even when we mourn loss in our life. Let us follow the example of Habakkuk and look back. Look back in scriptures and meditate on God's faithfulness to his people throughout the ages. Claim and hold on to God's promises. Look back in your own life and see how God has worked, how God has been faithful. See God's care, love, and providence over the years. To rejoice in the Lord in those difficult situations means that we continue to trust that his will is perfect. It means to find our satisfaction and our hope in our Lord. All of the great acts of God that we learn about in verses 3 to 15 foreshadow the ultimate mighty deed of history, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, in all our trials and struggles, we need to look to Jesus. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, suffered immensely. He suffered in many ways, like we all do. He was even tempted in every way, but was without sin. He greatly suffered physically, but most of all, he suffered because of the agony of taking our sin and paying our penalty. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he delivers us from sin's bondage. He brings us from death to life into that wonderful, eternal, promised land, and thus defeats our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. With our many difficulties and uncertainties, we can continue to wait quietly and rejoice in the Lord. Like Habakkuk, we can lift our needs to God in prayer, looking to Jesus as the God of our salvation. So when life crumbles all around us, we need not despair. God never abandons his purposes and his promises. He remains with us during our trials and struggles. Jesus Christ has brought us to himself. We are restored to God. And he shelters us, his hurting people with his wings. Psalm 90 says, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart, his, his protective wall. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. God surrounds you. And Psalm 139 says about God, you, you hem me in behind and before, and you've laid your hand upon me. So God surrounds and protects you on every side and on top with himself. Therefore, we can have confidence and faith in God. We can be like Habakkuk and, and live out 2 verse 4. The righteous will live by his faith. We can say with Habakkuk, the sovereign Lord is my strength. Everything else will fail us. Only God, the sovereign one, will remain with us and continue to work in our lives and in the world. This name of God, the sovereign Lord, in, in verse 19, um, Yahweh Adonai is the only time that God is addressed this way outside of the Psalms. The, the name emphasizes the power and majesty of God. And, and the Hebrew says it this way, Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength. 
showing Habakkuk's personal commitment to God. So what assurance the book of Habakkuk ends with. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on to the heights. In many places, Israel is, is a rugged place, so there are lots of opportunities to, to stumble. We, too, live in, in an unstable and uncertain world. But, but the hind, the, the female deer, was known for its sure-footedness in high places. We are like those sure-footed deer. God enables us, all of us who tread uncertain and shaky ground, because of the trials and difficulties in our life. He enables us to go on to the heights. He secures our feet so that we won't slip and fall. We need not be afraid, but trust and rejoice that God holds our feet and our future. Jesus has secured our future. He's preparing a place for us, a beautiful, elaborate home, so that we may dwell at his feet and in his arms of love. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there's, there's so much for us to, to take home from your word, so much for us to live by. Lord, may we remember your works. May we remember and see your faithfulness in your word, the Bible, and also in our lives so that we may turn to you and have confidence that you will bring us home, that you will give us what we need, that you will hold our feet from falling, that we may go into unshaky and uncertain futures. Lord, I thank you that um, you have given us Jesus who has secured our future. Lord, may we have faith and may we walk by faith in a God who holds our future and the future of nations and, and of world events. Lord, may we rejoice in you always, knowing that you do hold the future and that you are in control of all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>